Sego, Sewaguego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venever from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. This is the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. One of the foundational beliefs in Indigenous communities is that food is medicine. Food is spiritual, food is ceremonial, and food is social. As Haudenosaunee, we sing to our seeds before planting, during, and after planting. We save our seeds in special seed pots made from the clay of the earth. The word seed in the Mohawk language is onoha. The concept in the word is that it has a spiritual covering. Food is tied directly to our creation story, and one of our spiritual foods brought to us from the sky world is strawberries, Neohondesa. On this episode, Yohate Negasuna welcomes to the podcast Chef Rick Paulus from the Oneida Nation and the Bear Clan. Rick is a Red Seal chef and has been in the food industry for many years, learning and teaching and mentoring. Sego Rick. <laughs> now, oh, there, when we're talking about food, there's just so many things we can unpack in this podcast. Um, and I'm sure you know about every last one of them. <laughs> uh, how about we start at the beginning and, and how did you become interested in the food industry? Uh, well, thank you for having me uh, to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. So... I'm third generation chef, actually. Uh, my grandfather and my father were both chefs, and so it was a natural progression for me. Uh, my parents, when I was five years old, had a restaurant, and it was a busy restaurant, and it got to the point that you're telling a five-year-old, you're hungry, you got to make it yourself, I don't got time. So when I was five years old, I made my very first omelet, and from there was, hey, this is cool, and I just blossomed into wanting to know more about food. Um, I will say that I spent the first half of my life not knowing who I was. So I lived in a city. Um, that's how I cooked. That's where I cooked. And those were the ingredients that 
were introduced to me, and that's pretty much the kind of food that I had been cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, my aunt was visiting, and I wanted to impress her with my culinary skills. And I'm not proud of it, <laughs> but I like to laugh about it. Um, and so I, I wanted to make spaghetti and meatballs with garlic bread. You know, I'm 10 years old. I wanted to do something cool. Mm-hmm. And so four hours before she arrives, I get the water ready on the stove. I got the garlic bread ready. Meatballs are all shaped. They're in the oven. They've been baked. They're ready to go in the sauce. I got the sauce mm-hmm. going. And I thought, I'm ahead of the game here. <laughs> so what do I do? I'm going to jump ahead. I take all of my pasta and I put it in the water. Mm-hmm. It sat in the water for four hours. <laughs> Anybody who knows anything about pasta, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm 10 years old, didn't know you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Half hour before my aunt shows up, I I just melted down. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother looks at me and says, we can fix this. We can say, no, we can't. Look at it. It's a big glob in this water. And she says, no, we'll fix this. And just before my aunt got there, we remade the pasta and it was a success. But for me, I think that that says a lot about how I see food. Mm -hmm. You're not always going to be perfect. You're not always going to make the perfect dish the first time. Cooking is about trial and error. It's about experimenting. It's about learning. I learned that you can't put pasta in water four hours before you need it. <laughs> you know, lesson learned. And that didn't discourage you. No, no. it didn't. No. Um, I did take, uh, I went off the path. I went to school. I didn't go to school for culinary. Um, I became an accountant. So by trade, I'm an accountant. I hate it. <laughs> absolutely hated wearing a suit and tie Monday to Friday. Loved the paycheck. I hated the work. Mm-hmm. I hated dressing up. Um, and I went back to my roots, and my roots were cooking. So I went back to culinary school, um, got my classically train, or classical training in, uh, became a Red Seal chef, worked in the industry for over 30 years. Um, and I loved it. I loved the grunt work. I loved the stress. I love the pressure. I love being around food. I loved seeing people happy when they were eating the things that I made. Mm -hmm. And that was the motivation to continue. Um, And then I met my wife and I was reintroduced to who I was as Mm -hmm. a Haudenosaunee man. Um, I, up until that point, did not know very much about our food. Um, but I was willing to learn. I wanted to learn. Um, I consider myself a lifetime learner. I don't know everything about food. I think any chef, any cook that tells you they know everything about this or about that, they're lying to you because Mm -hmm. you can never know everything about food. You can always learn about it. You can always gain that knowledge. There's always going to be someone out there to share something new with you. I was fortunate to meet like-minded cooks and chefs who were willing to take me under their wing and show me traditional Haudenosaunee foods. And so I've changed the foods that I cook. I now 
gear my cooking style towards our traditional foods. I, I, I believe it's healthier. I've mm-hmm. seen it. I have lost some weight, not much, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, I, bad habits <laughs> creep in. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of supports out there when you want to learn about our foods. Um, and I'm always willing to learn. So for me, coming back to my food, you know, people call a blood memory. Mm-hmm. It was always in me. I never knew it was there. It's, it was shown to me here I am. Um, and I just want to share the knowledge that I have. Um, in saying that I did become a teacher. Um, I teach hospitality and tourism at the high school level. When I teach my culinary students from grades 10 to 12 about international and cultural foods, I ensure that I talk about our foods as well. Mm -hmm. And this is a generation where the students are very much like sponges. They want to learn. They want to know things. They're not sure if they should trust you. You're a teacher, but Mm -hmm. if you engage them, if you encourage them, they'll ask questions and they want to know. And I'm absolutely amazed at how many students in, at the high school level that are non-Indigenous that really want to know more about our foods because it's land-based education. We talk about how we how we plant and how we harvest and the ceremonies we do before, during, and after. Um, it's to them, I think it's showing them how important environmental issues are to us mm-hmm. because it, it affects everything that we do and who we are as people. Um, and I always make sure that these social, socially conscious issues are brought forth because I think everything ties in just like with us, you know, food, it ties us to language, it ties, ties us to culture, it ties us to our traditions and foods are to us a social means. We come together, we have celebrations, we have our ceremonies, um, we have our meetings. Food's a part of everything that we do, and it does help us build upon what we already know who we are into even stronger people, into better people. Mm-hmm. So. Can we back up a little bit? When when I introduced you like a Red Seal chef, and, and you explained that you are classically trained, what does that mean? Classically trained. Okay, so um, a Red Seal chef, uh, you'll hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm a chef, this, that, and other. Um, I actually had to put in my hours. I went to school. I went to a culinary school. I was instructed through classical means, uh, French uh, classical cooking, um, a lot of cultural stuff that was European, and again, when people talk about classical cooking, you are talking about the European style. That's what we always based uh, the culinary industry on is those styles of cooking Italian, um, you know, German. Uh, when you talk about baking, you're talking about Swiss. You're talking about Belgium, um, you know, the famous Black Forest cake, you know, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. So I was, I was taught how to cook in that means. Uh, when I graduated, I had to put in 
uh, was it 6,000 hours of actual kitchen time. I had to record it, track it, submit it into uh, the ministry. If they approved me, I wrote a four-hour exam with 150 questions. Doesn't seem like much, mm -hmm. but every question is a trick question. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> you, could, you think you got the right answer, or you don't. So I was trained in the European style of cooking. Um, and because I passed my exam, I'm now a Red Seal chef, which means I can cook anywhere in Canada as a chef. Uh -huh. um, pretty much I can cook anywhere in the world except the U.S. as a Red Seal chef. And in the United States, I have to go and write one of their exams to gain my status. I don't have a need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, as Haudenosaunee, we don't have borders. Yes, that's so true. So I'm a chef on either side in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and when I go to the States, if they want to know things about our way, I'm there to to assist with that. As are many chefs on this side, in you know, in this mm -hmm. colonized country of ours. So culturally speaking, when when we talk about anything, but um, there's a difference between the Western way, the European way, and our way. And with food, it's no different, right? Exactly. Very different. So, what would you say um, one of the di differences is? Uh, it's the respect of the land. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you'll see a big push, and it's been like that for five, maybe 10 years of farm to fork. We've always done that. That's always been our way. Uh, the colonized society sees that as, oh, we need to embrace this. Indigenous peoples across the Americas have always done this. This is how we are. This is our land-based way of life. This is our food sovereignty. This is how we create our own food security. And there's a difference between those two. But it almost seems like it's a fad to the colonized world that, oh, they're grabbing this and they're taking credit for it. We don't necessarily want the credit for how these traditional ways are, how we plant our, our crops and how we harvest them. And the fact that we are supposed to only take what we want, you know, the dish with one spoon, you pass it around, um, you take what you want, but you don't take an abundance of it. You pass it so that there's always something for someone else. Yes. I think society is still grasping with that because you look at people, the food waste that's, that happens these days is insane. We're taught not to waste. Yes. Traditionally, we're taught if the hunter goes out, he puts his tobacco down to his prayer before he goes out when he makes his kills he you know gives thanks to to the animal to our non-beings that uh have sacrificed themselves for us and we use every part of the animal that we can and mm -hmm. pretty much you can use any part of them a deer is a good example in society they won't do that you don't see a lot of places offering venison hard on a menu or you know um even then you don't even see backstrap or or venison leg being offered as a menu item you know yeah. they, they only go f you know the to them you know 
killing a deer and taking the tenderloin. I mean, the tenderloin is so small. Why would you kill an animal to get that little tiny piece of meat that's tender? Yes, but I like the backstrap myself. I like mm -hmm. it better than the tenderloin. Mm -hmm. Why would you kill an animal to use that part only? Mm -hmm. We don't do that. We use for tools. We use for clothing and shelter. And there's so many things that we that we use an animal for that when we when we go out and we forage and we hunt and and we provide for our communities and our families, we're thinking about all of that. We're not thinking about the bottom line profit margin. We're not thinking about um the headlines that we're going to get and maybe getting a Michelin star, uh, and especially in the food service industry, that is a big deal. Uh, one of the things I like to teach culinary classes is when you're dealing with indigenous foods, it doesn't matter where, understand where the food comes from, understand their traditions, their cultures, because, um, for example, when I teach, I've, being taught classically, I can cook with alcohol. I know how to cook with alcohol. Mm -hmm. I would never, and I never will use indigenous foods and alcohol. It's not a part of who we are. I would never cook with that. So I want the, I want my culinary classes to understand, know where you're coming from, your food's coming from when you prepare a menu. If you're going to do an infusion, be careful how you stress what's on your menu because you may get a backlash for that. Um, I remember seeing a restaurant once, an Indian restaurant, and I, I don't think it was very reputable. I didn't eat there, but I saw the menu, and they had beef on their menu. Well, beef is a sacred animal to Indians. Mm -hmm. So it shocked me to see that on their menu, mm -hmm. which made me think, well, this can't be a very reputable place. Mm -hmm. But you have to, you have to be culturally aware. Yeah. You have you have to be respectful of where your food comes from because there are ways that we treat our food. There mm -hmm. are ways that we process our foods and we for, as indigenous people process naturally. We don't do you know all these chemicals and we don't we don't do some of the crazy things that the industry does. And I want my culinary students to understand just have respect. If I was to take your cultural food, if you're, say, from Greece, and I was inappropriate in how I handled it, how would you feel? Mm -hmm. That's the same I want you to feel when you're handling food that comes from another culture. Be respectful, understand, and get that knowledge so that you are respectful with it. Like I said, I will never cook indigenous foods with alcohol. I don't believe we should be. Mm -hmm. It's not a part of our traditional way. So um, talking about traditional um, Haudenosaunee food, what what is an example of a, um, a meal that you would prepare? Well, one of the meals I absolutely love preparing, I did it for, uh, I'm, I should say, I'm doing my master's in education at York University right now. And I had to do a cooking demo for one of my classes. And this is a meal that I actually enjoy making. It's uh, a tender, it's a, um, sorry, a tenderloin. I got that tenderloin stuck in my head now. Um, it, it was a, it was a, <laughs> yeah, there's an edit. Um, so there's 
I like making venison backstrap medallions on top of uh, Sister Succotash. And I say Sister Succotash because one of the things that most people get stuck with is when you say the three sisters, they assume that there's only three sisters, the corn, the beans, and the squash. In that, there are other sisters. Zucchini is a squash, but we don't see it that way. Uh, sunflower, sunchoke, or what other people may call um, Jerusalem artichoke. Uh, we have other plants, other foods that are considered sisters. Amaranth is considered a sister. So I like to use sister succotash because I like to incorporate these ingredients into a succotash, which is just, um, in a classical way, it was a, a poor man's uh, pull together of different vegetables that they had um, that you would serve. So by doing corn, bean, squash, and then zucchini, and then adding sunflower, um, adding amaranth, making a nice dish out of this, putting the medallions on top. And then what I would do is I would take wild ramps, and because we have them plenty mm -hmm. on the territory, you can go out, forage them is charring them and just putting that on top. When you're adding some new color, you're adding a different flavor, and it's just, <laughs> it's just, mm. and, and it's healthy and it's traditional. And there's nothing, I don't use salt and pepper when I cook this dish. So I made this for my, uh, my cooking demo for my class. Um, and one of my classmates has invited me to do uh, cooking in their school board uh, for treaty week. And so I will be spending the entire week in the school board cooking uh, two meals every day for culinary classes and for the teachers. Um, mm -hmm. And this is the menu that they wanted. Yes, I'll be adding, because it's in a different school board in a different region, uh, I will be adding wild rice to the menu. I will be doing our traditional strawberry drink. Um, yes, maple and water and strawberries. <laughs> that is the only way to make that drink. I'm just Yummy. saying. Okay. <laughs> um, but that's one of my favorite meals. And when I make that, my kids go crazy. Mm -hmm. Another thing I love doing is I love grinding. I mean, I don't have a corn pounder at home. Yeah. So I, again, classically trained, I use a food processor mm -hmm. and I'll take blue corn and I'll grind it down and I'll go through the process of sifting it and I'll make blue mush and then I'll add strawberries and that will be, or uh, blueberries or strawberries, depending on what I have on hand. And my kids will eat that all week for breakfast. They mm. absolutely love that. And again, it's a traditional food. It's like a cream of wheat texture, isn't it? It yeah. is. And my kids just love it. Um, and when, when my kids are good, I'll drizzle <laughs> some nice maple on that and, and they're in heaven. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like that that kind of food, and I'm starting to cook more of it. Um, it's it's something that I think if if you have the chance, you cook things like that at home. You introduce that to your children at a young age; they become adapted to it, and then that's what they eat. Um, the problem with foods that have been introduced to our people 
is diabetes has become rampant. You know, we have obesity. We have illnesses that we did not have pre-colonial times. That says a lot about our food. Yeah. Our food was very healthy. It may not have been the prettiest food out there, but nobody back then was judging our food and giving us blue ribbons and giving us first place. They were sitting down together and enjoying our food. That's what I want to cook. We didn't have the white foods, the sh the flour, the sugar, and the salt. We didn't have those things. Yeah, we, the the white gifts, they call them, and, you know... You know, I've I've questioned some of the things that have come up. So if we didn't have uh, butter, what do we use? Some people say we use bear fat. You know, uh, some, you know, when you're talking about salmon, salmon can be a fatty fish if it's especially from the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, there, there are foods that we didn't need fats for. I mean, it just wasn't that way it it wasn't something that was introduced to us that was readily available until settler times um and yes they thought they were doing us a world of good or they knew what they were doing and trying to eliminate us but yes it tasted great but it wasn't good for us well when i was a kid i i remember my grandmother um making scones now uh, I love scones. I grew up eating scones, but that wasn't a traditional food, was it? No, not at all. And another thing that, um, like when it comes to that, it you have to look at um, the territory that you're in. Um, we had scones. Uh, we've got fry bread. We've got bannock. We've got pan bread. Being in Haudenosaunee territory bannock is definitely not one of our foods it mm -hmm. doesn't come from our people the closest we have is pan breads but again here we are using flour we're using white ap flour and that's not a traditional ingredient to us and for me the less i can use of those products the better it is i'm getting older my wife is getting older i don't want my kids to have those health concerns that my wife and I may have um, or that our community has. Mm -hmm. So it's starting to pull back on those ingredients because they're really not that good for us. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm careful with mm -hmm. the products that we use. But yeah, when you're looking at stuff like fry bread or Indian tacos, Indian tacos is a really good example. We love it. We claim it. Mm -hmm. But it, it's not. It's not a traditional food. It's, it's it's certainly a powwow food. Oh, it's a powwow food. <laughs> <laughs> and from some of the things I've seen lately online, if you go to a powwow, you can make yourself a pretendian. And we, we'll talk about that another time. But, mm -hmm. I mean, apparently people think that if you go to a powwow and you, you watch the dancing and you listen to music and you eat the food, all of a sudden now you're an Indian. It doesn't work that way. You are or you're not. And that's <laughs> another episode. It is. But yeah. I had to say it because the food's there and the food always brings people together. And yeah. powwows is one of those things. And people look at powwows and think, that's our food. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Corn soup is another good one because pork, when we put salt pork in our corn soup, salt pork comes from pork, which is the pig, which again is a colonizer food. It's not one of ours. It was added afterwards. Um, I've also had a couple of people tell me that we may have used 
bear meat or we could have put other meat indoors but salt pork wasn't something that was originally into our corn mm -hmm. soup so oh yeah um what about the white flint corn that is traditional to our um our people what kind of dishes would you make with the white flint corn oh there's so many things you can do i mean you 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 look at our cornbread for sure um you're looking at um empanadas and people say empanadas is the worst but empanadas is an indigenous food from the americas people need to understand that even though it's not one of our foods our brothers and sisters from south and central america are still our indigenous brothers and sisters there's a lot that we shared between um, empanadas are something you can use. You can use the white flint corn. You can add um, acorn flour or other traditional flours that we had that we ground the nuts from and turned into flour and have our fillings. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, you experiment with and, and you get creative with. Um, for me, I like using mush. I, uh, mush is, we're getting to that point. Uh, we've been to the community gardens, uh, we've, or the community cornfields, and we've, we've picked some corn so that we have corn for the winter. We've got white corn, we've got blue corn. We'll do the grinding and, and we'll make dishes from that. Um, for me, my schedule is so busy. I don't want to have to try to plan too much. I'll use the basics. Um, like I say, succotash is something I like doing. I like using the Three Sisters corn soup. I like doing things like that. Um, I'm hoping next year, we're doing renovations on the house. So I'm hoping next year I can get my kids into learning how to haul white corn. I want to go right from picking the corn, hauling it, grinding it. Um, I'm trying to get a pounder. Um, mm -hmm. I honestly do not know how to make one. I know what they look like. I know how heavy they are. I have an idea of how to make it, but, you know, again, I don't want to have a tree that's been cut down and me waste it. So I want someone to teach me how to do that. I do have friends that know how to make them. So I'm hoping next year to get a corn pounder. My kids will hate that, <laughs> but I want them to understand how much we respect our food going right from picking the corn right to you know, grinding and hauling and making cornbread. I want my kids to know how to mm -hmm. do those things. It's important for our yeah, people. Yeah, it's really important. Now, you were mentioning succotash. What culture does succotash come from? It's actually <laughs> Italian. Mm, I, um, I would and, never guess that. And it's it was a lot of... The, the one thing I love about Italian cooking, not being that it's indigenous so much here but italians were very thrifty people they they were poor you've got over 20 different regions in italy and each one specialized in something you know whether it was the sheep or and the cheeses or the meats or whatnot and then they shared and they always shared it was always this i mean where do you think we got i mean we can you can argue this all day long. Where did family meal come from? Was it from indigenous people who always gathered and shared the meals, or do you look at Italians who love to sit down 
and mm-hmm. put big platters of food out and everybody gathered. And the beautiful thing about Italians, for example, and we have that same belief too, is it is a social thing. You weren't sitting down eating and then getting up and having somewhere else to go. Italians could sit for hours eating food. And visiting. Yes. And that's what we did. And that's what we still do. So, I mean, we can debate. But again, that's one of my classically trained thoughts is I go directly to something like that to the Italians and say, they didn't like wasting either. It was They were very poor. There were rich people there. There were very rich families. But for the most part, they were peasant people. And so they they were very thrifty with the ingredients they had, with how they treated foods. Um, with and, respect. Yeah, yeah. very much with respect. and But it was also the respect of the family and the community because... You can watch over and over how many times you see Italian families. There wasn't just four people at a table. Mm-hmm. There would be 20 people. There would be 15 people. There would be 30 people. Everybody would just be talking and how you hurt each other. No, no. We have the same the same way. Is mm-hmm. We sit. We respect our food. We share our food. And it does. Even when you're at midwinters or you're at any of the ceremonies, once the food gets out, People start socializing, and it goes on and on. We don't have time limits. We don't have somewhere else to be. Now it's our social time, and we're going to share our food. Um, and that's one of those things that I I just I embrace with our peoples. It makes you stop time and just appreciate everything around you, the people around you the community around you, the food. And be in every- the moment. Yes, yeah. And you and you were saying that cooking is very creative. Um, so if you're a creative person, you could go into the cooking industry, yes. I guess. Um, what is the most creative dish that you've made? Uh, that you feel, oh, I was really creative when I came up with this. Actually, I think... And I'm I'm a meat eater. I mm-hmm. will say that I'm a meat eater. Um, I remember working in a hotel. Uh, we're going probably back twenty years ago. Um, some of you are old enough may remember who this is. Um, Michelle Wright. She's a country singer from the Chatham area. Uh, she was doing a, a county fair in this area. Um, oh yeah, I remember that. And she's. A vegan and or no she was a vegetarian sorry <laughs> we had a vegan server she made me crazy um but we but she's a vegetarian and she was performing that night at the county fair and one of the things that you learn through the industry you pick up little tricks and trades is people that have to perform using their voice you never have spice beforehand and I remember her ordering one of our vegetarian dishes, and I I knew who she was. I don't get starstruck very often, but I was starstruck over her. <laughs> and uh, I loved her voice, mm-hmm. and she's just a nice personality. And so I asked if I could see her, and they actually brought her into the kitchen. And I said, I know who you are, and I admire you. I know you're performing tonight. 
I would recommend something else for a dish because this dish is very spicy and spice isn't something you should have before you perform. You're going to be singing a long time tonight and I don't want to hurt your voice. And she says, oh, I appreciate your thought. Um, I love spice, but I, I respect where you're coming from and I appreciate the fact that you're looking out for me. I'm going to put my dish in your hands and... She let me have free reign with what I what I gave her. Um, so we did uh, a lot of grilled um, vegetables. Oh, I caramelized some carrots. Uh, I used endive as my vehicle for her. We did a nice um, vegetable velouté, which is basically uh, it's a sauce that you would. If you're going to make a cream sauce or a beef, a beef would probably be the best example. If you're going to make gravy, you're going to use a beef stock. So what we do is instead of adding um, ingredients to make it thick, what we do is we, we actually take the stock itself and we make the stock thick and it becomes a velouté. And so we used a vegetable velouté that I used some herbs and spices in and presented this thing just i mean the guys were taking pictures of this thing i, I can't even describe how this thing looks. it sounds so simple but some of the most beautiful dishes out there are actually vegetarian dishes because there's so much vibrant color to them when you're using uh fiddleheads and you're using um patty pans and things like that little different colored vegetables and you mm -hmm. present them different ways you know pan searing and you're and you're roasting and you're blanching and pureeing and things like this this dish was just absolutely it was one of the most incredible dishes I ever created and it was all because I had to I was looking out for somebody that I admired and she was so grateful that she actually came back into the kitchen after and signed a menu for me mm -hmm. and it was it, I, and I'm not a starstruck person. I've I've cooked for a lot of famous people, and for me, yeah, after a while, it's just they're just human beings. And she was a human being, but I was looking out for her, and she signed that menu for me. She was so grateful for that picture or for that plate. She took a picture with her and me as well, and it's just mm -hmm. you know, it, but. I mean, I remember that covering, I think it was the Paris Fair. It was. She was at, <laughs> and um, I was working at the newspaper at the time, and they said, you have to go and um, cover this um, fair, and she's going to be singing there and get a picture. Yeah. So knowing that you knew that, I actually worked at the Arlington at oh, that yeah. time, and she came in. We used to get a lot of famous people in there. Mm. Dan Aykroyd cooked for him. Mm. Uh, Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall. Uh, they're just the nicest people. I always found that the nicest people would come to that hotel. They just wanted to get away and they needed a break. Mm -hmm. And they always had no special request. They just were just decent people. Mm -hmm. But if you knew they were there, you would, and you knew something about them, you always took care of them. And they were always so grateful and they always come back. So. Oh, yeah. But, but I'm glad you remembered that because <laughs> most people don't. Yeah, I remember that. Um, okay, well, what else can we talk about with food? Um, all this talk about food is making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about 
Oh, I know you've traveled recently. You've yes. been to England and Australia. What yes. kind of food did you have there? Oh, um, it's it's quite amazing to get to travel. Uh, I've been a lot of different places in my lifetime. Uh, I've been very fortunate to get to travel. England was an experience. Um, people always say that England has bland food. I mean, that that's the first thing people say. Um, anybody who watches TV knows that may not be so true. I mean, Chef Ramsay, for example, I ate at one of his restaurants while mm -hmm. I was there. They have... I, and I spoke to someone about this, and I said, why is it people think that your food is so bland? I have not had one bad meal here in England. And they said, in the past 20 years or so, with the culinary scene exploding, people have really taking, taken their food seriously. And a lot of people have been going through the culinary schools, learning how to season properly, learning how to cook food properly. And the food is incredible. I had fish and chips three times while I was there, and it's a basic meal. But let me tell you, I have not had fish and chips here in Ontario as good as what I had in England in the entire time. Um, they make it the best, huh? They do. Uh, I had traditional Irish dishes because I was in Ireland. I went to Scotland. Um, I try to taste traditional dishes from those regions and those countries. and. One of the things that I've found is when you're looking for traditional foods from different countries, even in the European countries, the, the colonizers, their food is so simple. It's so basic, but it's so fulfilling and it's so comforting. Mm -hmm. It's the one thing that I, I've noticed. Going to Australia, I'd never been and... I said, I'm going to try kangaroo. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of kangaroo, okay? <laughs> Almost every day I had kangaroo in some form. And, I mean, it's it's delicious, but you can only get so much of it. And you say, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, I think I'm done with kangaroo. <laughs> um, mm. What I did learn about Australia is they do not eat koala. Mm. And, and it seems to be a question they get a lot. And I was curious, and of course... Somebody asked a question before me, and the reason they don't eat koala is because what's the one thing that koala bears eat? Eucalyptus, Eucalyptus leaves. yeah. So that's a, since that's all they eat, that perfumey essence is through their whole body. Mm -hmm. Can you try, imagine trying to cook a koala and taking a bite of that meat, and that's all you taste is eucalyptus? And mm -hmm. they said, that's almost like a defense to animals. You know, they do have predators, but they're other animals, and there aren't very many because of that. But humans don't eat koala because of that. Um, I thought it, it was because they were so cute. Oh, they are so cute. I got to, I got to touch a koala, soft. But yeah. I will say this, and it's off. Well, kind of, it's a kangaroo-based based thought is. I didn't think anything could be softer than a koala mm -hmm. until I got to pet one of the gray kangaroos. God, kangaroos are not supposed to be that soft, okay? Mm -hmm. The only thing I know that's softer than kangaroo fur is down. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how soft they are. Um, how do they cook the kangaroo? Like, what 
Okay. Oh, this is, and I ask this question because um, I'm always curious. I when I travel, I want to know about different things like that. And I would say, to me, the first thought is kangaroo. It's very muscular. You want to braise it. They said no, don't braise it. What you want to do is get it on the grill real quick. You're going to eat it rare to medium rare. You're just going to get color on the outside. That's when it's got the most flavor, and that's when it's most tender. If you braise it, it will actually get tougher. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And I thought, so, of course, me being who I am, I now have an Australian cookbook that teaches me how to cook kangaroos. So. Where are you going to get these kangaroos? <laughs> uh, kangaroos yeah, I know I know you, you may not believe this, but there are um, farms in Ontario that have kangaroo mm. that you could actually get kangaroo meat from. Um Will I run out tomorrow and get some? No, I still have had my fill of kangaroo for the time being. Mm. But I think it's important. Um, Do they make things like chili with it, with kangaroo? No. No? No, because chili takes time to cook, right? Mm -hmm. And the longer you cook kangaroo. And oh, I've, yeah. I've had many people tell me in Australia that even from the territories, if you cook it too long, it's tough and it's rubbery. Mm. You don't want to eat that. Mm. So it's it's something that you really do want to cook in a very short period of time. Well, is there something in this world that you would love to cook that you haven't yet? Oh. I you know, that's such a loaded question because mm -hmm. there's many places I've never been. I've never been to the Middle East. Uh, I would love to work with some of their ingredients. Um, I've been to Hawaii. I've tasted some of the food there. I would love to learn how to cook some of their traditional dishes. Um, it's it's such a loaded question because, like I said earlier, as a chef, you will never know everything and you will never have done everything. But mm -hmm. that's the beautiful thing about being a chef and being a cook is you will always have an opportunity to learn. I'm hoping that uh, in three years I'm I'm going to New Zealand for a conference. I would love to hook up with a chef from New Zealand prior to going and spend maybe three months or so and cook with them, learn how they cook their foods, how their traditional foods, because Again, they're like us. There's a lot of foraging that can be done and a mm -hmm. lot of foraging that that's there for them to provide traditional foods for them. And it's it's amazing. Um, and not all of it's meat. Yes, there's a lot. You know, there is meat. There's salmon there. There's the eel. Uh, there's sharks. There's many different things that they have. But I'm more interested in the traditional foods. Though I will say New Zealand have this beautiful potato is called the kumara and i had purple and i fell in love with this thing instantly when i first went to new zealand mm -hmm. and i would love to to see how what other dishes they make with this other than a mash or you know uh, a diced potato um but i i'm i'm always open to see what's out there um i will say the one thing i will not ever i'm one of those people that believes because I'm bear clan, I should never eat bear. Mm -hmm. So 
I will probably never eat bear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I just can't find it in my heart to do it. That was the first thing I asked my wife when I met her. I said, are you bear? She said, no, good. Then we can get married. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wolf, so I'll never eat wolf. <laughs> okay. So anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our podcast? Um, I think the one thing that I I have learned in coming back to my traditional ways, and I, again, I'm a learner. Um, I understand that food connects us to every part of who we are. Um, I want to learn my language. I, I struggle because I'm from Oneida. I live at Six Nations uh, of the Grand River Territory with my wife. Oneida is not a language spoken there. So I it's close to Mohawk though. <laughs> I, I know everyone says that, but also the same thing that Mohawks say is why do you Oneidas keep dropping letters off of your words? <laughs> My wife ours are like a foot long. <laughs> and we like to shorten it. But um it's it does empower me to want to learn the language. And I I, I would say that um for people who want to want to get back into their culture because there's many of us out there that want to come back home mm -hmm. and food will bring us back home. It will get us those contacts, you know, of how to share our foods, how to cook our foods, how to prepare, how to grow our foods. But that will also get us to our language. That language takes us to our culture. It, it opens our eyes to what, and who we are. It's that blood memory that I mentioned before. But in saying that, I also believe that we should explore other territories, learn about the other territories, be respectful when we go to their territories. Don't be afraid to go to South and Central America and learn about their traditional ways because there are brothers and sisters. Um, I'm very respectful wherever I go, and I think it's an experience that's helped me grow as a human being. Um, it's helped me grow as a chef, as a cook. Um, and I, I would always say, if you get the opportunity to travel to another territory, take that opportunity. Immerse yourself in their foods, in, in their ways, because one, they are our brothers and sisters, but we can learn from them as much as they can learn from us. And we're very proud of Haudenosaunee people. Mm -hmm. We love our food. We we put our food out there and we say, <laughs> see, we can cook. We got good food. Um, and we will share our food. But it will also show us that relationship we have with other territories, other people, uh, our other brothers and sisters. And it will show us that they're just like us because mm -hmm. they have the same ways of being and knowing that we do. We just haven't reached out to get there to see that they open their doors. We're visitors. They open their doors for us. They'll feed us. They'll take care of us while we're there. And then we're going to say, it feels like we're home. Yeah. Because in all honesty, we are. We are we're Turtle Island, and everyone on Turtle Island that's Indigenous, they are our family. And I think uh, uh, 
an important message is to everyone is to, we have to take care of the earth because that's where our food comes from. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And for us, we understand that and we're doing what we can. And I think people are starting to understand that. I don't think they're doing it fast enough. I don't think enough people are getting that message. Uh, so I think for us, and I think it's important that we lead, we show everyone else, this is how you take care of your, your land, your water, your air. This is how you take care of your food sources. This is how you take care of your family, your community, and your people. Mm -hmm. If you do this, you will survive. Mm -hmm. And we have survived for as long as we have been on Turtle Island, and we will stay here. We will be here. Well, with that, I let's have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's have lunch. With that, I want to say Nyawe to Rick for joining us on this episode of Yohat De Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast. And yeah, I am like so hungry all of a sudden. <laughs> okay, onigiwahi, Rick. No, for having me. And let's meet again on the next episode. Yahweh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Venevery. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.